Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you're all doing very well. Uh, as you know, today we are discussing uh, science and uh, that's what we will discuss. So let me first take a look at who all is there and greet you all. So I can see Anshuman, Yuvraj, Jatin, Harshwardhan, Shweta, Prachit, Dragon Master, Abhishek, Sharma, Swapnil, um, Chirag, Parth, Akshay, Suraj, Darshan, Vault Gaming, Bulldozer, Baba, Alpha, Deepak, Crazy Brain, Umbrella Corporation, Priyanshi, Samarth, Pratham, Dar, Jatin, Rajat, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. And with that said, I will get right into the questions. As always, a lot of questions. So let's see what we have for today. What are today's questions? Let's go with question number one. Question number one is by Tejas. Tejas says, why is zero not equal to one? Please answer it in a way that viewers like me won't fall asleep. <laughs> um, I could offer you a mathematical proof that zero is not equal to one, but how do I prove it in a way that, that you won't fall asleep? Uh, so how many of me do you see right now? How many Abhijits do you see right now? You see one Abhijit, right? And how many Abhijits do you see now? How many? This is zero. You can see zero Abhijits now. Now it's one. Now it's zero. Magic. So that, I hope, proves that zero is not equal to one. There you have it. That is your non-mathematical but physical proof. That zero is not equal to one. Hope that makes sense and I hope that it did not, did not make you fall asleep. <laughs> okay, next question. What's the next question? The next question is by Swapnil. Uh, how was a pig heart transplant in a human made possible recently and why did it fail so soon? Right, so people have been... Uh, trying to, I've been mean, testing out various ways of implanting uh, organs from other species into humans in order to overcome the uh, human organ shortage. So many people have organs that fail in old age or because of whatever reason, hearts and lungs and kidneys and livers and uh, other organs. Yes. Uh, so there is a, a high, uh, there's a high demand for organs. And of course, the only way to, to acquire organs is from somebody who unfortunately passes away and the organs are still intact. Yeah. Or somebody who's brain dead and whose family decides to donate the organs for, for somebody else's benefit. That sort of thing. But such people are very scarce. Typically, when a person unfortunately passes away, the, the body decomposes very fast. Unless you're in a medical environment where the uh, organs can quickly be harvested and saved, the organs will go to waste. That's how it is, unfortunately. So, a better alternative, if it is possible, is to find a way of transplanting uh, non-human organs into humans. Uh, but that obviously has uh, lots of uh, problems, right? Because first of all, the main problem in organ transplants is rejection. Our immune systems know what is our own tissue and what is non, what is tissue that doesn't belong to us. Uh, they understand that. Our, our, our immune system understands that. Even if you get a transplant from another human being, your immune system will immediately know that this is not your tissue. It's from somebody else. And it's going to attack that. It's going to regard that as a foreign invasive force. It's going to go ahead and try to destroy it. And the immune system is very good at doing this. 
it typically destroys organs very rapidly uh, that are that are transplanted from another another person into you or in, into a donor into a recipient from a donor to a recipient so to go to so this is called organ rejection it happens very rapidly and to overcome this problem typically you give immunosuppressant drugs to the recipient which suppresses the immune system which has all kinds of other problems so it's it's a tight rope it's a tight rope act that you have to do you should not suppress the system immune system so much that that the person will fall prey to any kind of illness and die from that but also the immune system the immune system should not destroy the organ that you the, the recipient needs in order to stay alive so uh, typically you give certain drugs that suppress the immune system to a certain extent but uh, keep the person reasonably healthy right uh, it's usually a cocktail of immunosuppressive drugs and all that so that's when you have a human to human transplant there is this new process called xenotransplantation so it's from one species to another species now typically pig organs are quite similar to human organs and that's why the people have been trying uh, have been exploring the possibility scientists and doctors have been exploring the possibility of transplanting uh, porcine organs into humans xenotransplantation so initially they did tests on baboons baboons are uh, species of monkey they are not apes they they are monkeys right yeah so people uh, i mean uh, scientists tested uh, transplantation of organs from pigs into baboons it worked reasonably well then what they did was they tested uh, the uh, the connection of of pig organs like kidneys essentially i believe to brain dead human beings so people whose brains have stopped functioning they they are dead they're in the vegetative state they have no chance of recovery so that sort of thing was tested out and it's it seemed to work well uh, the the uh, kidneys of pigs were attached to these human bodies that were no longer viable uh, they were brain dead and the kidneys i believe uh, functioned reasonably well they functioned well Uh, as per expectations they produced urine and all that so that worked now in january 2022 this year there was this person this elderly person in the us who uh, who had a heart that was failing that person was guaranteed to die he had no he had no way out and he was not eligible for whatever reason for a uh, for a human transplant so uh, the authorities gave the go ahead for a xeno transplantation procedure a pig heart would be implanted in that person uh and this was not any just any regular pig it it was uh, there's this company i don't know which what's the name of the company you can look it up which uh, engineers pigs that are um, that whose genes have been edited so what is done is that the genome of this pigs is edited in such a way that you implant some humans human genes in there and you remove some uh, some pig genes so that kind of tricks the human body which will receive the pig organ into believing that this could possibly be a human organ so it's like stealth mode you activate stealth mode and you implant the organ in the in the, in the recipient so that sort of uh, procedure was done they raised these pigs that have these mixed genetics whose genes were edited and then obviously one of these pigs would have to be sacrificed and you remove the heart that's how it's done it's sad but that's how it is you remove the heart and so one of these pig hearts was implanted in this uh, person in the us i believe in january this year 2021 and it went well yeah the person uh, woke up from the operation the the heart was beating uh, as well as could be expected and and the, the person survived two two months i believe before he passed away and everything was going well but then suddenly the person started falling uh, ill he was not well 
and uh, what they discovered is that it was not that the organ was rejected they had given a cocktail of immunosuppressive drugs I, i think on two occasions to this person after the transplant was done and his uh, immune system was not attacking the pig organ the pig heart it was not rejecting it what happened is that there was some virus some pig virus that was present in this organ in the tissue in the heart tissue i think it was called a porcine cytomegalovirus or something like that i may have got it wrong that's what this virus was called now they had engineered the pigs and they had given the guarantee this company that there would be no viruses but clearly they messed up so this organ this heart had that virus the porcine cytomegalovirus now this virus is not something that typically infects human cells it infects pork uh, pig tissue now in inside a pig these viruses are prevalent and the pig's immune system ensures that the uh, viruses are suppressed and they don't create any trouble but when you remove the organ from a pig pig's body you implant it into a human uh, body the human body has a human immune system not a pig porcine immune system and that's why the uh, the viruses start proliferating that's what seems to have happened so when they finally did the autopsy of the organ and all that they found that there was an unbelievably high high amount of virus in there and that's possibly what had caused the degradation of the organ it became um, it stopped functioning as it should have it uh, it's it became it, the the walls became thickened and and more stiff stiffer than what you would expect and something like that right uh, you can look up exactly what it was uh, there's plenty of articles about that and uh, so that's what happened so there's a couple of reasons why this could have happened first of all the company messed up the company that produced these pigs had given a guarantee that there would be no viruses but they, they, they messed up and this virus was present in the tissue and secondly the the immunosuppressive drugs they had the doctors had given to the person intravenous immunoglobulin or whatever it contained antibodies that acted against pig cells so not only was there the problem of the virus but the uh, the antibodies that were given to the person the patient acted against the pig cells and would have possibly damaged uh, the the heart tissue in some way so there are a number of reasons why eventually the the heart failed and the person passed away but it's not because of organ rejection which is good news which is good news first of all this person was as good as dead he he essentially had no hope of survival so he was given he got another extra 2 months of life eventually this this uh, the heart failed but it was not because of organ rejection which is a significant step forward so if these problems that arose could be uh, circumvented firstly by by ensuring the the next heart has no un, uh, no such viruses and secondly you don't give antibodies that act against pig cells then possibly the next such recipient would have a much longer life and the heart would last much longer so uh, it's it's uh, that's the latest news uh uh human organ transplants have been going have been happening for a very long time i believe right now the heart transplant from one human to another from a donor to recipient is a reasonably routine uh, procedure reasonably routine procedure it still has has risks and all but once the heart is implanted is implanted i believe the average the median uh, life expectancy of a recipient is about 15 years which is excellent which is an excellent outcome so that's where we are today but in the future i believe xenotransplantation will be worked will be researched upon much further 
in the future, you may have such procedures becoming more commonplace. And that would essentially, if that can be perfected, and if you could achieve the same kind of uh, outcome, 15 years median life, uh, life expectancy after transplantation, that would be a massive step forward. That would be a massive step forward. And it would, uh, so it would, uh, the problem that we face today is this organ shortage. There are so few organs available and so many people who need that. So that could solve that problem. So that's where we are. It's a very interesting step forward. Obviously, it involves sacrificing the lives of pigs. But well, that's unfortunately where, where it is. That's how it is. So that is the news. That's what happened. That was the story of the pig transplant that happened this year. Pig heart transplant. It failed, but uh, it did not fail because of organ rejection. It failed because of other reasons, like I just outlined. So that's the story. Okay, Vashist says, as per the abiogenic petroleum origin theory, most of the Earth's petroleum and natural gas deposits may have been formed inorganically, like the methane and other hydrocarbon fuel deposits on Titan. Thus, the dinosaurs may not be the origin of our fossil fuels. How far is this, is this true? Okay. So, uh, the mainstream theory, the widely accepted theory is that uh, the origin of petroleum is from the decomposition of organic mat matter, of, of uh, plant, etc. matter. The uh, abiogenic origin theory says that it could have originated from non-living uh, materials. Uh, for instance, it is well known that various asteroids and comets contain lots of organic compounds, right? complex hydrocarbons, uh, even amino acids. Which is the which amino acids are the are the basis of life, right? Or are the basis of proteins. So it so because of that evidence, it is speculated that maybe maybe the petroleum and natural gas and fossil fuels on the earth may could have could possibly have had an inorganic or abiogenetic abiogenic origin. This theory is not a mainstream theory. It is not very well accepted. Uh, if you look at the various mechanisms in which through which petroleum and fossil fuels could form, the organic biogenic theory makes a lot more sense. We know that life has been present on this planet for billions of years. Initially, it was uh, unicellular, then multicellular life, very simple life. Algae, you had algae all over the planet in the oceans, yeah. And uh, so the theory is that when these algae die. Algae are typically unicellular plants, right? So typically when these uh, organisms die, uh, they would think, they would, they would decompose. But in cert certain conditions, when you have stagnant water, water that does not contain, does not have mixed ox oxygen, oxygen dissolved in it. And when these algae die in stagnant water, they go to the, to the bottom of the, of the pool of water, maybe the, uh, the bottom of the ocean, where you have such conditions. And there is there are anoxic conditions, which means there is no oxygen available there, which means decomposition cannot happen. Then you could have a massive amount of this organic material that uh, sinks to the bottom of an ocean, of the ocean. Eventually, it goes underground. Underground, you have heat, heat under the surface of the uh, under the surface of the of the earth in the earth's crust because of uh, a number of factors. This heat uh, catalyzes the production of what eventually becomes petroleum. And uh, depending on the on the depth below the Earth's surface, you could either have liquid petroleum, you could have uh, kerogen, I believe, which is one stage prior to the formation of petroleum or or or, uh, or or oil, 
crude oil crude oil and if it is below a certain depth then because of a process called i believe cracking you would have the uh, the formation of natural gas so that this theory makes a lot more sense given that there was this vast proliferation of life on the earth which is known from a, a large amount of evidence yeah so that theory makes a lot more sense we know that the, the, that uh, titan has hydrocarbons uh, all over its surface in the atmosphere uh, and we know that the, that hydrocarbons and even amino acids are found on asteroids and planets and yet on earth the biogenic theory makes a lot more sense and now you're talking about dinosaurs dinosaurs are not the origin of fossil fuels it is these simple forms of life from the very early phases of our uh, planet's existence that are the origin that that are the source of the origin of our fossil fuels whether it is uh, crude oil or 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 uh, gas you know uh, natural gas so that is where we are that is the answer the abiogenic petroleum origin theory does not make a lot of sense the theory that makes way more sense is the biogenic origin theory of petroleum and natural gas okay aira says most unanswered question to me is that why are oceans deep inside cold with high pressure but as we go deeper inland under the surface of the earth it becomes hot what is the reason behind this could you please answer this and answer and explain it as well isn't this a very interesting question fascinating question you go below the ocean surface the oceans get colder colder and colder yeah but when you are when you go when you drill below the surface of the earth in the crust of the earth the deeper you go the hotter it becomes i mean for instance you go about 500 kilometers below the surface of the earth uh the temperature is almost 2000 degrees celsius almost yeah you go 3000 kilometers below the earth surface the temperature is around 3000 degrees celsius and the inner core of the earth which is between 5 and 6000 kilometers in depth has is believed to have a temperature of about 7000 degrees celsius or kelvin kelvin celsius almost the same right so that is that's how it is as you go deeper under the earth surface the temperature rises and yet under the oceans you go deeper the temperature gets colder why is it so so to understand why it is so we have to understand what causes the heat what is the source of the heat under the uh, under the earth surface so firstly uh, the the primary the, the oldest uh, source of heat under the earth surface is planetary accretion so our solar system formed from a a protoplanetary protosolar protostellar disk yeah which gave rise to the which gave birth to the sun and the other planets which are in existence around the sun so that is number 1 so that is the source of the uh, that is the first source of heat uh am i visible or is there any problem in the in the connection is my image clear or is it blurred that's the question i, I get the feeling there may be some problem maybe not maybe it's fine
is my image is my image visible properly am i visible it looks like i am visible all right there may have been a brief network issue there may have been a brief network issue it, it seems to be good now all right all right thank you for letting me know okay so the the question is is why are the oceans cold as we go deep inside and why why is the surface why is the earth why does the earth get hotter as we, as we drill deep inside uh so the first source of heat is residual heat from planetary accretion the earth formed from very hot material the protostellar disk and there is a lot of heat left behind from that as you go deeper into the earth surface the, below the earth surface below the you have you have several layers of the earth surface you have the crust then you have the mantle then you have the magma layer then you have the outer core and the inner core and as you go deeper it's hotter because at the in the in the interior of the earth you still have this heat left over from the formation of the solar system and of the earth so that's number one the second source of heat in the surface of the in the in the interior of the earth is a radioactive decay of radioactive isotopes nuclides such as uranium 238 uranium 235 thorium 232 potassium 40 and so on and so forth there are a number of radioactive elements that decay radioactive decay occurs and this radioactive decay gives off heat and this contributes to the heat in the interiors of the planet so that these are the two major reasons why the interior of the earth gets hotter as you go deeper inside firstly residual heat from planetary accretion secondly radioactive decay of radioactive isotopes none of neither of these two sources of heat is present in the oceans and that's why the oceans are much colder and as you go deeper see heat rises to the top he, uh, hotter fluids if you have a fluid which has a temperature gradient you will always fi find that the hotter part of the fluid rises to the top and the colder one sinks deeper deeper to the bottom whether it is air or whether it is uh, of any any liquid so therefore as you go deeper into the ocean you will find colder and colder water so that's why as you go deeper into the ocean the water gets colder but as you go deeper below the earth surface the environment gets hotter very good question i'm i'm glad somebody asked this okay next question is by karan sharma there is an idea in string theory that the whole universe may be a hologram the holographic principle su suggests that we all experience that what we all experience every day in three dimensions may really just be information on a surface located at the farthest farthest reaches of our cosmos what are your thoughts on this do you think we live in a hologram if yes are we just following a pre-written script okay what is this holographic principle what is that um well it's it's a, in a way it's really hard to explain what the holographic principle is i would have to explain what is conformal field theory anti-deceptor conformal field theory duality ads cft correspondence all that but let's not go into that let me give you a an analogical briefer simpler possibly hopefully simpler explanation um i'm you've all heard of black holes uh according to uh, a black hole is a quantum object as well as an object that uh that arises out of general relativity right uh so a block a black hole is an object that has an event horizon a boundary of no return you go beyond that you will never ever come out so stay out of it all right don't go anywhere near a black hole firstly that is that 
Secondly, a black hole has an event horizon, the point of no return, the boundary of no return. Inside, if you go inside the event horizon, if you cross the if you cross the forbidden threshold, then inside the black hole you have empty space. Um, that's what it is believed to be from the perspective of general relativity. You have empty space more or less. But if you go inside a black hole, you keep going towards the center of the black hole. And as you reach the center, the strength, the, the force of gravity, the curvature of space-time becomes more and more extreme. And at the very center, you have what's known as this singularity. It's a monstrous thing, object, which uh, is infinitesimally small. It's a point which has infinite curvature of space-time and infinite density. So as you go towards the center of the black hole, you get stretched out in the process called spaghettification. And at the center, you get squeezed out of existence. And you become, you, you disappear. But your mass energy gets added to the mass energy of the black hole. That's what happens. Now, you as a physical human being are made of particles and molecules and bonds and all that. That is a whole lot of information, quantum information. Right? Let's even if it's just a piece of uh, let's if it's a human being or, or or an atom or whatever goes inside, it has certain information that's encoded within it. When this atom or this human being gets sucked into the black hole and gets squeezed out of existence at the center in the singularity, the mass energy does get added to the mass energy of the black hole, but the information disappears. And that doesn't make any sense. Because throughout the universe, from all our understanding of the laws of physics and of nature, information is never destroyed. And yet, apparently, inside a black hole, information gets destroyed. That is the black hole information paradox. And Stephen Hawking said that... So that's what he said. He did a lot of work on black holes from the general relativistic perspective, from a quantum perspective also, quantum field theory perspective. The semi-classical Hawking radiation you may have heard of and so on. So Stephen Hawking uh, said that when it comes to black holes, when something goes inside a black hole, the mass energy is added to the black hole, but the information is destroyed, which makes no sense. So the string theorists started working on it. Physicists who indulge in string theory, an interesting pastime. Just kidding. So string theorists started working on it from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. In the 90s, this new principle was put forth. And it was eventually called the holographic principle. It said that any object that crosses the event horizon leaves behind its information on the event horizon. This information, which is part of the object, becomes encoded, it becomes smeared out, smeared out on the surface of the black hole, on the essentially, essentially on the event horizon. Right? So the information is not destroyed. The object gets destroyed, its mass energy gets added to the black hole, but its information remains encoded, remains encoded, stays encoded on the surface, on the exterior boundary of the black hole, which is a essentially a two-dimensional boundary. Right? So that essentially says that the boundary of a black hole is like a hologram. It's a two-dimensional surface which shows you something that's three-dimensional three inside. What's a a hologram like when you have a credit card there is a holographic image on that right as a security measure it's a flat two-dimensional image but if you see it from different angles it looks like it has something three-dimensional encoded inside so a hologram is a two-dimensional surface that gives you 
information that that has information that appears to be three dimensional inside so there are true holograms and false holograms that i will not go into that so if you expand if you extend this idea the analogy of the black hole and information being encoded on the surface to the entire universe then our universe if it is finite it would have a boundary and maybe all of the information within the universe such as me what what what's in me what's in you all of this all the stars planets galaxies everything all of this information may well be encoded on the surface on the external surface that surrounds our entire universe so maybe our universe if some great alien being were to see it from outside it would appear like a hologram a two dimensional surface which encodes three dimensional information within so that is the holographic principle that's the analogy i can offer you i hope it makes sense so our universe could very well be a hologram and all the information within it could be possibly encoded in binary form or whatever form on a two dimensional surface that envelops it from the outside so that is the holographic principle it arises out of string theory right uh it was uh, gerard tooth who came up with this in, 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 initially then it was uh, leonard sus kind of worked on it and and other people as well so that's what it is do we know if it's true or not we don't know but from the string theory perspective it makes sense that's the simplest uh explanation i can offer now the last part of the question is are we following a pre-written script um see we all know the best theory of the origin of the universe is what we call what is colloquially called the big bang theory which says that all of the mass energy information everything of the universe was once compressed into a single point or something that was close enough to a single uh, zero dimensional point the initial singularity that eventually out of which space time expanded and that is what we call the big bang now if this is true then everything that happens in the universe can be uh, if you reverse time if you reverse the equations of time we can go back to the origin of the universe and again if we take the time clock forward then we can work everything back uh, forward in time which means that the entire universe all the mechan all the mechanics dynamics statics of all the objects molecules everything in the universe atoms subatomic particles photons everything follows differential equations and these are very complex differential equations but they are simply differential equations so they will work forward in time and backward in time if I mean, it, it, this is how it makes sense. That's the best theory that we have, and according to this theory, there are certain un uncertainties, quantum uncertainties in the universe. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that the universe is is uncertain. It's probabilistic. It is not entirely deterministic, and yet these are actual uncertainties. These cannot be factored into the equations. If you remove this randomness from the universe, then everything else follows the. differential equations all objects in the universe subatomic particles everything follows this differential equation they are governed their entire life cycle the the movement everything is determined and governed by these differential equations which means that free will doesn't exist what i am said saying right now was determined at the um, at the moment of the big bang the very fact that i exist here was predetermined at the moment of the so called big bang 
and every single thing I speak and I do is predetermined per these differential equations that govern our existence, which means the thoughts that I have, the emotions that I have, everything is predetermined. So from that perspective, there is no free will and everything is just, uh, the universe is made up of clockwork. There is this randomness, the quantum randomness, but that is, you can say it's an external kind of thing. Uh, it is not something that can be pre predicted. So beyond the fact that we have quantum randomness, everything else is predetermined. And uh, the, quantum the quantum randomness does not affect our, our will. So, so that's what it is. It, it's a very scary thought. I mean, obviously, we understand next to nothing of the universe. Our best theories are actually quite crude and rudimentary and primitive. We understand less than 5% of the universe. So we should not get carried away and start saying that we know everything and th there is no free will. But from the best theory that we have, which is a very poor theory, actually, from that theory, it appears that it would appear like free will is an illusion and everything is like predetermined. But that may not quite be the case because we only understand a very little tiny bit of the universe and our uh, our understanding of the universe is far, far, far from complete or correct uh, entirely. So that's what I can offer you and I, ho I hope that makes sense. Okay, Prasad says... Um, but thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. NASA re uh, recently did the DART mission that will act as a full planetary defense system to protect us from potential asteroidal impact. What are your views on it? And do you think it will be effective, irrespective of the size of the asteroid? Yes. So... Uh, Planetary defense from asteroid and comet impacts is something that's taken very seriously. We know what's happened multiple times in the past. Our good friends, the non-avian dinosaurs, no longer exist. They're no longer with us, uh, very sadly. And they were wiped out by a massive impact, the uh, Chicxulub impact event about 66 million years before today, which either fully or partially contributed to that catastrophe, that mass extinction. So it's something that is taken very seriously by uh, organizations like NASA. So what is this DART mission? I think it's called deflection of asteroids, something or the other. Um, what is it? Okay, let's let's Google it, right? Why, why do we want to speculate? Let us Google up the exact uh, full, full form of DART. Where are you, sir? Google? Here we are. Here we are. What is DART mission? D dart simply dart double asteroid redirection test that's what it stands for so that is the dart mission so it's it's i believe something that's going to happen in uh september it's it's already been launched uh, when was it launched it was launched uh, some time ago okay it was launched in 2021 and the impact is going to happen in september this year september 2022 so what is this thing this is a spacecraft that is designed to go and collide with a double asteroid system. Uh, so it's a double asteroid system, a large asteroid, which and a small asteroid that are gravitationally bound together. So it's like an asteroid that has a small moon of its own. And this DART uh, spacecraft is going to go and impact one of these objects. I, I believe the moon, the smaller object. So the smaller part of the system. Or maybe not, whatever it is, you can look it up. So let me explain the principle behind this. The exact specifics, you can Google it and see it for yourself, but let me explain the principles behind this. So let's say you have an asteroid, which is a high-risk 
asteroid, which means it's an asteroid that in the future could collide with the Earth because its path in the future could coincide with the Earth at a later time, which means the Earth and this asteroid could be at the same time and place in the future. So that is a high-risk asteroid. Let's say you have a high-risk asteroid which has a significant probability of impact with the Earth, maybe in 50 years, maybe in 100 years, maybe in 200 years, maybe in six months, hopefully not. Yeah, let's say you have an asteroid like this. How do you ensure it doesn't collide with the Earth? You can use a gravity tractor, you could use a uh, you, you could use possibly nuclear weapons, you could use an impact. There are multiple ways of doing this. So this is a test of one of the ways of deflecting the asteroid. So what happens is this. This asteroid typically would have a mass of uh, between a billion and a trillion kilograms. It's a massive, massive thing. I believe its uh, diameter is close to a kilometer. That's a massive object. This spacecraft would weigh about half a ton, 500, 600 kilos, something like that. It will travel at a certain velocity. It will go and impact this asteroid. The impact of the spacecraft into the asteroid will, will, will impart a certain amount of momentum to the, uh, to the asteroid. What is the formula for momentum? Very simple. mv squared. P equals mv squared, right? So it's... Uh, the mass of the impactor multiplied by the square of the square of the velocity. That's what it is. So the higher of the, the higher the velocity, the the greater the momentum and so on. So this impact will impart a certain amount of momentum to the asteroid, and it will change the velocity of the asteroid by I believe a couple of millimeters or four millimeters per per second or something like that. Whatever the the exact amount is, it's a very small change in the velocity. Velocity is a vector quantity, vector, it has direction. So it will change the velocity by a very small amount. Very, you could call it a negligible amount. But if you take the, the effect of that and you take it forward for a, by a few months, a few years, a few decades, then the trajectory of the asteroid will have a significant change. And uh, it may you may be able to ensure that it does not collide with the Earth a few years or decades down the line. So that small little impact could eventually, will, will eventually end up deflecting the trajectory of the asteroid and ensuring that it does not hit the Earth. So this mission, its objective is to test out this, uh, this essentially this technology. We know it works, it will work, but we want to see exactly how it works. What is the effect of the, of the impact? Because certain asteroids, we may believe they are very compact, but they are quite loose. Some, some asteroids are just piles of rubble. The consistency is like that of popcorn in a bowl, you know. Uh, there was this uh, recent, uh, reasonably recent uh, experiment in which a spacecraft landed on an asteroid. I think it was asteroid Bennu. And they were shocked to discover this asteroid is just, is, is a very loosely held together body. And its uh, density is much lower than what they had expected, and it uh, the the very slow uh, the very slow touchdown of the spacecraft threw up a huge wall of debris, you know, gravel and all that from the asteroid. So, if an asteroid is not solid, if it is just loosely bound rubble, then an impact like this could potentially just go through it and not have much of an effect or deflective effect on the asteroid. So it is important to test these, these things out. 
So that is the reason why the DART mission has been launched and it's going to, uh, the the impact is going to happen in September this year. And there is going to be a flyby of a CubeSat or something, which will actually um, give us visual images of the impact. So that's something very interesting. I look forward to it. And uh, it will certainly be very exciting. And it will give us a lot of new information that we did not have until thus far. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, Karan says, apart from string theory, which theories are the other contenders for the theory of everything, for the theory of everything, which one do you think has the most promise? Well, um, the standard model of physics, which does not include dark matter or dark energy. So the standard model of, of physics is the best theory that we have thus far. It's, it's, it's been called the theory of almost everything. But obviously it's, it's very deficient because it can explain only about 4 or 5% of the matter of the mass energy composition of the universe and that too there are certain loopholes in this theory and and, uh, and yeah so it's not a perfect theory it is an approximate theory it is the best jigsaw puzzle the jigsaw assembly that we have made this far but it will certainly be improved upon so it is it has been called by some people as a theory of almost everything the standard model uh, the other theory that is touted as the theory of everything is the is string theory. There are, I believe, five versions of super string theory. Yeah, five major versions. So that is touted as a theory, of, as a potential theory of everything. Then there is M theory, the 11 dimensional M theory, which uh, brings all of which, which uh, brings, which, which is an outcome of string theory, essentially. Yeah. Uh, so that is the, so M theory is a potential possible theory of everything. Then you have loop quantum gravity, which is uh, which may be a, a very good, interesting theory. Uh, I have spoken about this in the past. I've gone into detail what L, LQG loop quantum gravity is. There's a small video clip on this channel. Look it up if you want more details. So loop quantum gravity is another candidate for a theory of everything. And then you have uh, theories of gravity of quantum gravity because you would need to reconcile general relativity and, and and quantum theory in order to have a theory of everything so you have something like causal sets which is an approach to quantum gravity that uh, that, uh, that attempts to reconcile the two and so on so these are various candidates for being the theory of everything uh i think loop quantum gravity shows promise so uh, if you were to ask me which is the uh, thing that uh, the theory that has the most promise, maybe I would say loop quantum gravity. But obviously, it is not the not the final version of the theory. It's not a perfect theory. It has it needs to be worked on, but it's certainly very interesting. It says even time emerges out of quantum foam and quantum loops. So yeah, if you want to know more, look uh, check out check out my video my my video on this channel and in which I go into a little bit of detail about what LQG is. So that is the brief answer to this question. Okay, Ritvik Sardesai says, what is ethanol blending and how will it help us produce energy for transportation? So what is ethanol blending? Let's first talk about what is ethanol. Ethanol is ethyl alcohol. What is the formula? C2H... C2H6O, I believe. Ethyl alcohol. You have methyl alcohol, then you have ethyl alcohol, and so on, and so on. So C2H6O is ethyl alcohol or, et or ethanol, ethanol, whatever you want to call it, right? 
what is it it's just alcohol it's it's the alcohol that humans can consume it's it it's the the, the recreational drug that is part, that is the essential component of beer and whiskey and all of that that's ethanol right uh so now this is a good so, source of, of of fuel in a typical fuel uh, engine in your car in your scooter vehicles motorcycles etc we use petrol or diesel as the fuel that is combusted to produce energy and that's what drives the vehicle that's that that's the mechanism right so you can also use ethyl alcohol in the same engines in the same motors you can so instead of filling your tank up with uh, petrol or gasoline or or diesel or whatever it is you could fill it up with alcohol ethyl alcohol and it will work just fine so ethanol blending is when you mix about 10 or so percent 10% 20% whatever the ratio is of 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 ethanol into your gasoline into your into your petrol so what you get is petrol with which has about 10 or 15 or 20 whatever percent of ethanol in it it's a blended fuel and uh, that's what uh, the government of india is trying to do in order to uh, offset carbon emissions and all that so how do you produce ethanol you produce it by fermenting a uh, uh, agricultural uh, agricultural essentially garbage right so typically when you how do you make wine how 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 has wine been traditionally made let's say out of grapes you crush the grapes you let them ferment for a few days and then you distill the thing there's a whole process and you get ethanol you get the wine the grape wine out of it and then you age it for whatever time that's the process so wine is produced which wine is essentially ethanol it is produced by fermentation fermentation of grapes fermentation of of hops fermentation of potatoes if you want to make schnapps and so on and so forth you could also take leaves and compost you know i mean leaves or or uh, cut grass or uh, sugarcane stalks out of which all the sugar has been extracted all of that you could ferment that and produce ethanol so you are recycling agricultural waste product products to create ethanol that's great that is a green technology so then you produce ethanol using that process and you use it you blend it with your regular gasoline with your regular petrol or whatever and you uh offer that as fuel for vehicles so that is the process of that is the principle behind ethanol blending i believe the indian government is uh, working on this and uh, so that's how that's what it is and that's how it is it's something that helps us produce energy for transport for transportation and it is something that is can be classified overall as a green technology as as a greenish technology it's not entirely green it has a carbon footprint but it's better i mean if you if you are able to replace the uh, requirement the need for for petrol with ethanol then it's 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 good for the planet because you no longer have to extract uh, crude oil etc out of the planet and it's it's overall good so so that is the principle and that that is what ethanol blending is okay gihan jain says can you please tell in short how antimatter is made antimatter antimatter so first of all what is antimatter 
So antimatter is a weird form of matter. Antimatter particles, antimatter particles, whether they are so antimatter particles share the same mass as their regular matter counterparts, but the qualities such as electric charge and other charges, other quantum numbers are opposite. So for instance, we have electrons in the regular world. The antimatter counterpart of the electron is the, is the positron. It has the same mass as the electron, but it has a positive charge. The electron, the regular electron has a negative charge. The positron has the same mass, but a positive charge. Similarly, protons, regular protons have a positive charge. Antiprotons have the same mass as the proton, but they have a negative charge. The photon is the antiparticle of the photon and, and so on, right? So that is what antimatter is. When you take protons, antiprotons and positrons, you bring them together. If you, if you make an anti if you take if you make a positron go around an antiproton, you get anti-hydrogen. And similarly, you can create anti-matter, uh, anti-atoms, and so on. So that is what antimatter is. Now, how do we create it? Typically, antimatter is created in particle colliders, particle accelerators. You take two particles and you smash them together. This could be ions, this could be atoms, this could be protons, whatever. You take these. So let's say you have the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, Geneva. Yeah. So this is a particle collider. It's a particle smasher. You smash, I believe, protons together or whatever it is. You smash them together at extremely high velocities. Very, very, very high velocities. Close to the speed of light. And the outcome of these collisions is, is new particles because of this enormous amount of extra energy that's added to the particles. Right? E equals mc squared. So the outcome, the output of these massively energetic collisions is new particles. And typically, what we find is that when we create such matter in particle accelerators, we get an equal amount of matter and antimatter. So that is typically how antimatter is created. And one could, one can, so you need a perfect or close to perfect vacuum, first of all, in these uh, particle colliders. And then you would want to, you would, to, to uh, store this antimatter, which is created, you would need a pro proper vacuum and magnetic confinement so that the antimatter particles don't collide with the walls of the walls of the container. The moment they collide, they come in contact with the walls of the container. They will annihilate and just give off pure energy. So that's how you create antimatter. But it's interesting. You should also know this: that your body, our bodies, they emit antimatter. So a person who weighs about, let's say, 70 kilos would emit about 160, 170 positrons per hour. Positrons. Your physical body emits antimatter. If you weigh about 70 kilos, you would, you, your body would emit about 60, 160 to 180 positrons per hour. Where does this come from? It comes from the, from the decay of potassium-40, which is a naturally occurring isotope that you ingest typically by eating bananas, but also from drinking water and eating food and also from breathing. So there is a certain amount of potassium-40 that is available present in food, in water, in the air, and there's a lot of it in bananas. Yeah. So if you have a truck full of bananas, that can set off Geiger counters. 
So your body emits antimatter, but a very small amount of antimatter. Isn't that fascinating? All right, next question. Saurav says, what is the possibility? Collapse of the Earth into the Sun or collapse of Earth into the black hole of our galaxy as the galaxy has a spiral shape towards the center? All right, so what you're essentially asking is what is the ultimate fate of the Earth? And as I hope you know, the ultimate fate of the Earth is intrinsically tied to the uh, ultimate fate of our Sun. The Sun is our parent star and everything revolves around the fate of the parent star. So the real question you may be, you are actually asking is what is the ultimate fate of the Sun and the solar system? And that includes the planets around it. So what's going to happen to our Sun? The Sun currently is uh, your uh, small, small average kind of yellowish star, yeah? in a very boring neighborhood of the galaxy. Yeah. It's going to remain this, this way. It was born about four and a half or so billion years ago out of the re remains of an older star. So the sun was essentially reincarnated from the, the debris, the, the debris of an older star. So in about five, five billion years from today, the sun will become a red giant, a red giant. Uh, because of the fusion reaction, because of the way the fusion reaction within the sun changes. So the sun is essentially a massive fusion reactor. What is fusing? It is fusing hydrogen into helium. Right now that's what's happening. Eventually what will happen is that all of the hydrogen in the sun will be used up in this fusion reaction. Hydrogen is being fused into helium. Once all the hydrogen is used up, the core of the sun will have to fuse helium into carb into heavier elements like carbon, oxygen, etc. And the last stage is when carbon is fused into iron. And the, the thing is that when you have the fusion, when you have a fusion reaction of elements with with mass numbers greater than 26, what is the mass number? It's the sum of the protons and the neutrons in the nucleus of that element. So when you have fusion of elements with a mass number greater than 26, then this fusion reaction uses more energy than is output from the reaction. That is essentially the death knell of a star, right? So in the case of the sun, the sun is a small star. It's not really massive. So what will happen with the sun is that about, in about 5 billion years, the hydrogen will be used up and the sun will become, will, the outer layers of the sun will expand and go outwards. It will become a red giant. Its diameter will, will increase massively. It will engulf the orbit of Mercury. Mercury will disappear and be burnt. It will eat up Venus. It will also eat up the Earth. It will engulf the Earth. The Earth will then be within the sun, within the sun inside the sun. So that process, that, that's going to happen at around 5 billion years from today. Then there will be this phase of, of fusion of helium into carbon, which is a very small phase, about 10 million or so years. Eventually, the outer layers of the sun will dissipate. The sun will no longer be powerful enough to, to hold them together. And the outer layers will just dissipate and go outwards. It, it, it will eventually become what's known as a planetary nebula or something like that. Then, the, at this stage, the core of the sun still exists, but it's no longer fusing. It's just really hot because of the history of the sun. And it's mostly made up of carbon. This is the white dwarf stage of the sun. So the sun will become a white dwarf and it will remain a white dwarf for 
trillions of years and slowly slowly cool down at the end stage all the heat most of the heat will disappear dissipate out into the atmosphere into the environment into outer space into vacuum and what will be left behind is what's called a black dwarf what is a black dwarf it's a giant diamond crystal giant diamond crystal because the last stage is the fusion of what to what of helium into carbon so at the end you have this massive carbon uh, nucleus a massive uh, ball of carbon and it is extremely highly compressed because of the gravitational forces so it's diamond that is the allotrope of carbon that will be left behind so it's a giant diamond crystal that you will have have at the end at the end of after trillions of years so that is the ultimate fate of the sun so what's going to happen the earth will be engulfed by the sun in about 5 billion years from today and it will be burnt burned out all the atmosphere everything will disappear it will be just a hot rocky object within the uh, eventual nebula that will form from the death of the sun right so that's that's how it's going to be uh it will not be engulfed by the uh, it will not fall into the black hole of the galaxy because of the way gravity is the black hole is not like a giant vacuum cleaner it sucks everything inside no even if you have a black hole that's going around the sun it will not suck anything inside it's just a massive object which follows the the laws of physics right and there could possibly be a primordial black hole in orbit around the sun possibly maybe that's what the so called planet 9 or planet x is this unknown thing that seems to be there but we are not able to see it maybe it's a primordial black hole a smallish black hole that is going around the sun and that's why we, it's not visible maybe or maybe it's a planet that we still haven't found because the solar system is vast it's in- enormous so that is the ultimate long term fate of the earth and the sun and the solar system right Akash says it seems like a great deal of the of time has passed since a big scientific breakthrough has happened especially in physics it it's my is my observation correct and if it is how is it possible because we are we are far more advanced technologically compared to the 20th century because of engineering still our perception of the universe hasn't changed much scientifically speaking uh your observation is correct akash uh the last great breakthrough major breakthrough in physics was inflationary theory inflation cosmological inflation which uh, this theory was put forth i believe in 1980 or 1981 by alan guth so that was the last major breakthrough in theoretical physics which has been proven by observational evidence we find observational evidence of this and that's why it is an integral part of the uh, big bang inflationary cosmological model right lambda cdm and so on so uh, that's the last major breakthrough we have experienced in physics before that every year every decade there are major breakthroughs right in the 20th, 20th century there were so many breakthroughs in physics the entire world was transformed and revolutionized you had relativity special relativity general relativity then you have quantum physics you had the rudimentary quantum theory the discovery of the quantum nature of the world and then uh quantum theory took off it took a few decades but then you had quantum field theory then you had particle physics then you were you had the understanding of what what particle th- physics really is the symmetries of nature 
uh, the eightfold path and, and so much more. Then you had uh, electroweak theory. And uh, all that remains now is to understand what gravitation is. So since 1981, there's been no new breakthrough, no new massive major discovery. We are still essentially where we were in 1981. The 21st century was supposed to be, was hoped to be, expected to be the century in which we will finally figure out what gravitation is. We have not moved one millimeter forward since uh, the 20th century in terms of our understanding of what gravitation is. And all of the uh, progress that's happening is, like you rightly say, it's because of engineering. We are, our engineering prowess is what is uh, taking us forward technologically. So we have more and more computing power, better, better computers. We have more miniaturized devices like smartphones and all that. Technology is progressing. It's engineering that is doing it. But there is no, there is no new fundamental breakthrough in physics. The big questions are still, they still remain unanswered. So that is what the situation is right now. We have hit a brick wall and we are not going forward. Why is it so? Why is it so? Well, there are multiple reasons. We are not thinking differently. If we are facing this problem, we have to change our way of thinking. We have to change our approach to solving the problems. We can't just keep on doing the same thing over and over, over, over again and hope for something different. That's the definition of madness, I believe, isn't it? Uh, doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different outcome each time. It doesn't work. So what's happening right now? Everybody, especially the West, especially the US, is deeply, deeply invested in string theory. String theory has taken over every single, almost every single theoretical physics department. Most of the funding is being poured into research in string theory. And you see so many papers being published every, every week, every month, every year. So many papers you will find being published every single day. You can see them on the physics archive in, every, in other places. There is so much output, research output, and yet it's taking us not one millimeter further ahead. So clearly something is wrong. There is this uh, attitude of publish or perish in academia. So the entire focus is on publishing, output, volume, throughput, but it's not taking us forward. And the string theory mafia has choked all progress, essentially. That's what is happening. That's what's happened for the past many decades. I'm not trying to disparage the string theory, but it has not produced any results. It has not produced any results. It's not taken us forward. It's produced wonderful papers and beautiful mathematics and very complicated mathematics and all that, but it's not taking us forward in physics. So maybe, not maybe, definitely it's time to rethink our approaches. We need funding in other fields of physics, in other branches of physics, in other approaches, right? Uh, so th that's that's where we are. The string theory of the string theory mafia essentially has uh, ensured that we are at this impasse right now. So yes, your observation is indeed correct, and we need a change of approach totally. Right now, it's all group think. Just do the same thing over and over again. Everybody must do string theory. Otherwise, you don't get funding. You don't get uh, admission for your PhD and all that. That's how it is in the US. So that's why I'm, I say that uh, the string theory mafia has taken over. There's a stranglehold. You want to do a PhD in theoretical physics, most likely you have to go into string theory. That's how it is. You want to take some other approach, mm -mm. you won't get funding and you won't be accepted. That's how it is. So that needs to change. Maybe things can change in other countries. Maybe if we, if we in India could 
could get get our act together and reform the education system maybe we could throw up a few breakthroughs but uh, we are far from doing that right now so that is the situation <clears throat> excuse me pushpendra singh says how does a wounded organism regenerate to exactly the same structure it had before well it doesn't regenerate to exactly precisely the same structure but essentially the same, the same structure so let's say uh, we know how it is right mm. so why is it so how does the body know that it has to regenerate exactly to the same in a certain way how does it know it is because of the information that's encoded in our genome in the dna the dna is a blueprint the dna is the blueprint to the entire organism as to how the proteins should code what proteins should code and what should happen so uh, so that it's because of the information that is passed on from generation to generation encoded in the genome in the dna of the organism so when the organism is wounded let's say it uh, loses some some part of the body let's say it's a microscopic organism or or multicellular organism low lower life form it knows how to regenerate and the regeneration is done because of the information encoded in the dna even some uh, species of uh, lizards like salamanders etc even if they lose a limb they can regrow the limb and it it uh, the new limb that is regrown after a few months or weeks or whatever it is time period is is essentially the same as the limb that was lost so it is because of the genetic blueprint provided in the genome in the dna that is how the tissues the organs know i mean the the body the physiology knows how to uh, to regenerate the tissue in what form it is to be regenerated it is all because of dna dna is the blueprint of the organism okay two questions in one arnav says ha, arnav says was the first moon landing done by the us during the space race era cold war era real or fake tejas says why do many people still believe in the flat earth theory and also why do many people believe that nasa's first moon landing was fake okay the first part of the question is was the moon landing real or was it faked well india's chandrayaan mission has taken pictures of the surface of the moon which show uh that the apollo lander is still present on the surface of the moon right it shows the tracks of the of the astronauts who walked around and other, other artifacts from that moon landing so clearly unless the chandrayaan spacecraft is also fake unless it is I mean obviously it's not fake right so clearly it really happened the other thing look at it this way we know we know for certain that the american government invested 2 or 3% of the entire nation's gdp in the 1960s into nasa we know that for a fact a huge amount of money was poured into nasa we know that it employed so many scientists and engineers we know that right we also know that they built so many rockets the mercury program the gemini program and eventually the saturn rocket the saturn program we know that these rockets were built we have seen we still have footage of the launches many of the in- initial uh, tests failed many of them ended in explosions and disaster some of them actually went into into earth orbit eventually there you had a manned space flight space flight program we know it happened 
there is enough evidence of the fact that these rocket launches, these human space flights happened. We have video footage, ample amount of video footage of all of these events. Right? We also know that they built the Apollo rocket, the, the, the Saturn rockets. Saturn V, the most powerful rocket ever built until that time. We know that. We have seen the space launches. So we know all of these things happened. But if they have invested so much time, effort and money and manpower to doing, doing this, and they have rockets that actually work, then why is it so hard to imagine they actually worked and went to the moon? Then we also have photographic evidence of the moon landings. Not just by the Americans, but by, by also by the Indians, by the Indian uh, Chandrayaan mission. So if you take all of this evidence together, I mean, the only conclusion is that this actually happened. Right? So yes, obviously, this is, this is real. These, the moon landings were real. They were not faked. That is my understanding. If somebody has a better understanding, please feel free to educate me in the comments. I'm, I have an open mind. Right now, the other question is by Tejas: Why do people, many people, still believe in flat Earth theory and the moon landing was fake and all that? Look, look. Uh, consider this analogy. Consider this analogy analogy from marketing and human psychology. People make a decision to buy something based on emotions. The purchase is made emotionally, and after you purchase the item. You justify it with logic. That is how the human mind works. So, people, most people don't have an understanding, a, a deep understanding of science. Most people, because of the education system, because it's so hard to study science, it's it's hard to invest so much so much time studying the science, studying science, the scientific method, and so on. So, most people rely on their understanding, re rely on other people for their understanding of science. So they choose somebody, an influencer, a popular media figure, a writer, whatever. They choose somebody based on emotion. That, yeah, this person feels good to me. When I listen to this person, he or she looks like he or she makes sense. Or maybe I like that person's voice. Or maybe I like the person's face. That person appears to be trustworthy. So you first form an emotional connection with that person. And then you take... Then the, once you have that emotional connection you essentially uh, start believing everything that they say is, is true. Uh, or it could be a book. You like the style of the book or whatever. So most people, they don't understand science. And then, but they want to know about it. So they rely on intermediaries. Uh, they rely on middlemen to give them information about science in an easy to digest manner. And many of these middlemen are not quite correct in the way they interpret science. Maybe they do it on purpose, maybe they do it because they, they sincerely believe it's true, whatever the inter interpretation is. That is why many people believe in flat earth theory and believe that the NASA moon landing was fake. And there are religious reasons for that too. Many religious figures, especially in the Abrahamic religions, uh, they, they still propound the flat earth theory that all of this is wrong and all that. And people who are religiously inclined, who derive emotional uh, comfort, etc. from religion, they will be very much predisposed to believing everything wholesale. So these are a number of factors why people believe such things. Flat earth theory, fake moon landings, all of that. Most people uh, don't have the, um, the intellectual background 
the scientific training required to discern what's right from what's wrong and what true what data is telling you as 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 opposed to what data doesn't tell you so these are the reasons why you have these attitudes and and these beliefs that still persist as of today but the thing is in india there are very few people who believe in the flat earth theory it's in the west in the us etc that lots of people believe in flat earth theory now ask yourselves why why is it so that is homework go ahead and what do you think let me know in the comments not in the chat in the comments once this stream is done all right next swapnil says since pluto crosses neptune's orbit astronomers have long wondered why don't the two celestial bodies collide some simulations predict that pluto should have collided with neptune or escaped the solar system so what's keeping pluto stable in its technically chaotic orbit uh gravitational mechanics celestial mechanics right the data that we have is data from the past couple of centuries past 50 years past 100 years the indian astronomical data that was transmitted to the west maybe may have uh, spanned a period of 5000 or maybe a few few more thousand years that's an eyebling of time in the cosmological scale in the scale of the lifespan of the solar system so the truth is that many of the orbits that we have in the solar system today could be unstable orbits it is almost a certainty that the orbits have changed that, that many ancient protoplanets that were once in orbit around the sun would have been ejected out of the solar system many of them would have collided the asteroid belt is testi- is testimony to an ancient collision in which two or more uh protoplanets or ancient planets collided and got destroyed the fact that saturn has rings is testament to such violent uh, to such a violent event uh it's possible that earth was struck by an ancient planet and that gave rise to the gave birth to the to the moon and so on it's also known that the orbit of jupiter has changed over time that's what the best simulations tell us and that's why it's it's able to shield the inner planets from massive collisions with asteroids and uh, we know that the orbit of the the axis of rotation of uranus i believe or neptune i think it's uranus is is tilted at 98 degrees which is again uh the consequence of an ancient collision with some other object uh we know that uh the moon triton is something that's been captured uh, because of the an unstable orbit and it is also known that pluto crosses the orbit of uranus neptune one of these most likely neptune so that also is 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 in a tilted and strange orbit uh, pluto takes about 247 years to complete one orbit around the sun for earth it is 365 days for pluto is it is 247 earth years so uh the solar system is still a dynamic place the orbits are still evolving in a few million years it is possible that the orbits may, may have changed again it's possible that venus may be ejected out of the solar system in a few million years we only have a very small sh- snapshot of time of, of, for which we have data and information these processes happen over millions and billions of years so 
in the future pluto may very well collide with neptune it may very well escape the solar system even venus possibly may escape the solar system or may even collide with the earth these things are very very possible but over a very long period of time it won't all happen in our lifetimes our lifetimes are are are, are an eye blink of time what is 100 years it's nothing in the cosmological scale so uh so that's the that's the answer these things uh, this is all still happening in in a few million orbits in the future pluto may may end up somewhere else it may end up colliding with neptune it may end up escaping the solar system and all these these things all of these options are still very much open yeah so we what we are seeing is 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 a moment frozen in time our lifespans are so small that what we are seeing is just a, a few moments in time that's it but the whole story is much 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 longer than that right it's like you're watching a movie for 3 seconds and you're asking why did nothing happen you get it so that's how it is okay raise says how can a human life be extended and can it be done in this century please shed some light on this this is the age old quest of immortality or longer life how can we live longer can we live longer can we live 100 years can we live 150 years 200 years wouldn't that be great so can human life be extended so to answer this question we have to ask ourselves why do humans uh, die it's because of the process of aging eventually aging deteriorates the body to such an extent that it cannot sustain life right uh, so that is death by natural causes so so how do you slow aging if you slow aging then certainly you can extend human life right so let's say aging happens at a certain rate dx by dt let's say you make that rate half so one half of what it was then you may be able to double your lifespan or something like that so what causes aging it is believed that one of the primary contributors to the to the process of aging is the shortening of the telomeres in human chromosomes so human chromosomes are what make up our dna in our in our in the nuclei of cells not red blood cells but other cells and at the ends of chromosomes you have these structures called telomeres these telomeres when you are born have a certain length and as you grow older the telomeres their length gets progressively shortens and it is believed that it is the shortening of the telomeres that causes the process of aging and therefore one of the keys to slowing down aging or maybe even reversing it could be ensuring that the this process of the shortening of the telomeres doesn't happen or maybe figuring a way out to reverse it or stop it so there is a lot of research being done about this i believe there are um, i don't remember the names but there are some scientists some very prominent scientists biologists etc who are working on this so that is the primary approach that i know of as of today that people are taking towards the science of possibly how to reverse or 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 slow down aging and that would obviously have the consequence of extending human life spans so it could happen this century uh, conceivably that is the best answer i can offer you uh, uh, do your own research it's it's an it's an interesting field and that also has other questions that pop up from that i mean is the human brain capable of uh, functioning well beyond a certain age 
you may have a body that stops aging will it also stop the deterioration of the human brain of the human mind dementia senescence or whatever you call it right mm. so yeah these questions are still un- unanswered but work is being done on this okay karan says where is voyager now does it still send any data so voyager is not one thing it's not one spacecraft there are two vo- two spacecraft voyager 1 and voyager 2 strangely enough voyager okay i think voyager 2 was launched before voyager 1 a, a month or so apart so both of these spacecraft were launched in 1977 and the objective the purpose of these two spacecraft was to photograph the inner, the, the the gas giant planets of our solar system saturn jupiter uranus neptune essentially and their moons if possible so these were great successes both of these spacecraft did a great job of photographing giving us the first good photographs of these gas giant planets beautiful photographs that people still put as their wallpapers and all that yeah so uh, that was the original objective of the voyager spacecraft um so as of today i believe voyager 1 is roughly 150 or so astronomical units away from the sun from the earth what is an astronomical unit it is the distance between the, between the sun and the earth that mean distance is called one astronomical unit so as of today 2022 voyager 1 is about 150 between 150 and 160 astronomical units away from where we are that is about 23 billion kilometers from here so that is where voyager is as of today it is now technically in interstellar space it has technically left the solar system it's now in interstellar space it is still sending back data and that data has helped us understand a lot about how about what the environment of interstellar space is like what is the termination shock like of the solar system what is that uh, so all of these uh, various regions of space we have been able to understand them better because of the data that voyager 1 and 2 have sent back to us it is still sending us data but um the power supply on this spacecraft on on voyager 1 is now failing it will probably fail by 2025 which means that this spacecraft will most likely stop sending us data stop collecting and sending us scientific data by around 2025 which will which means that we will no longer be in contact with it from that point onwards from that point onwards it's a dead space spacecraft more or less it will go off into interstellar space for tens of thousands of years millions of years and maybe someday somebody out there may find it and figure out where it came from so that's what it is it 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 contains this gold disk with uh, information about where the earth is and it, there are recordings of voices from 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 the our planet and all that so there is um, a certain amount of data on it in the hope that somebody out there may find it someday so that's where voyager is that is a status and uh, yeah that's your answer your favor says in the future can technology remove the uses of ink pen and pencils yes certainly technology can do anything technology could uh, do away with the requirement for using pens and pencils 
today we have these touch screens you could actually write stuff with your finger on it or you could use a stylus like the apple stylus or apple pen whatever whatever they call it there are such devices available for android as well and so on right so yeah you may no longer need the need ink pens and pencils you may no longer need paper and so on so technology can certainly do it but is it something that will gain wide acceptance will everybody have the money to shell out the the large amount of money that you need to shell out for to to acquire such a device is it going to be practical is it something that will be able to be adopted widely by everybody all across the world these are questions that still remain sometimes technology takes things too far which you don't really need uh, let me tell you an interesting story so in the 1960s the americans and this 1950s 1960s and 1970s the americans and the soviets had this massive space race right they were both vying to be the number one space faring nation on the world because of various considerations including military te- technology space has a military dimension so on so the americans and the russians were competing for supremacy in the space race and the americans had astronauts the russians the soviets had cosmonauts yuri gagarin was the first cosmonaut valentina tereshkova was the first woman in space neil armstrong was the first human being on the moon and so on right so they had this space race many years later when things were better when the cold war was more or less over uh, one of the american astronauts met a russian astronaut and they had a conversation they exchanged notes and experiences and all that and the american uh, guy i think it was neil armstrong if i'm not mistaken he asked the russian guy about how did you write in space the american guy said that we in nasa we had this massive uh, research program in, in as to how to how to uh, create a pen how to build a pen that works in space the ink should flow the way it flows on earth and you should be able to write in space so it cost uh, the, the entire technology create the demonstration and creation had it it cost millions of dollars and eventually they were able to create a pen that worked flawlessly in space yeah so so the american astronaut asked the russian guy how did you guys write in space the russian guy said we used a pencil no need to spend invest millions of dollars developing a pen with ink that works in space they just used pencils they solved it this this problem with low tech with a low tech solution <laughs> so yeah that's an anecdote but uh, you don't need to remove everything and and invest in uh, in expensive technology to to replace things that don't really need replacing of course pen pa- paper paper is a problem the more humans we have the more paper is required and the more trees you need to cut that is definitely a problem but um, which would need a solution but overall uh, to use technology to get rid of pens and, pa- and pencils seems as of today a little bit of overkill Okay alpha says can you briefly tell about saturn's hexagon so why should i tell something when i can show you a picture a picture is worth a thousand words okay saturn let's go to saturn hexagon so there you are it's something that's on the polar regions of saturn this massive hexagonal arrangement of the clouds of the of the top top layers of the saturnian uh, saturnian saturnian atmosphere 
this is the shape it's it's a reasonably hexagonal shape as you can see there are vertexes at the center and there are other storms as well within the hexagon this is another image of that and you can see various representations of the hexagon and this red image here is the central vertex within the hexagon right this is another image of that in different colors so this is the hexagon saturn's hexagon now what is it it is something it is a certain shape a hexagonal shape that has emerged out of the complex fluid mechanics and dynamics of the saturnian atmosphere it's something that seems to uh, exist uh, on the top layers of the atmosphere because of the complex interplay of the various gases that various uh, kinds of gases that are there in the atmosphere and they would exist at different temperatures and they would mix in certain ways uh, so this is a consequence of the fluid mechanics of the saturnian atmosphere fluid mechanics is an extraordinarily complex field uh, the equations that govern fluid mechanics are they look deceptively simple but they are incredibly difficult to solve uh, typically you need uh, you need supercomputer simulations and all that so i don't have the exact answer as to why you have a hexagonal shape there but it is because of the interplay of the various fluids and gases in the atmosphere which has given up given thrown up this sort of shape and uh, i believe various uh, scientists in certain universities have tried to replicate this sort of uh, phenomenon and some of them may have succeeded so it's a consequence of the of the complex fluid mechanics in the atmosphere of of saturn which involves the various various gases of the atmosphere various compositions various mixtures various uh various uh, temperatures various densities and all that you take all of these various different parameters together in a planet of a certain size and you and it throws up this sort of uh geometrical shape when it comes to other planets you have different shape you don't have any hexagon on the earth's atmosphere you don't you don't ever see that at the poles right but for instance when you take some a body like titan titan is a moon of saturn it has a very thick atmosphere on titan at the poles you have these vortices the the, tit the titan's atmosphere is very thick it's composed of hydrocarbons it's a very cold atmosphere but very thick and at the poles of titan you have these vortices which are like roughly uh what's the shape called spiral kind of shapes yeah so it's a smaller much smaller object and you have spirals there but on a gas giant like saturn you have a hexagon which you don't see on jupiter again so it's it's a very complex phenomenon to which we have no ready answer but the basis of this of this phenomenon is fluid mechanics okay abhijit verma says atoms never touch each other for if they ever did there would be a huge explosion then what creates a sensation of touch what creates cause and effect when a billiards ball hits another another one when rafael nadal hits a forehand okay so uh, if two atoms were to collide you would not re really have an explosion what happens is the is governed by nuclear physics and uh, be, 
within that there is quantum mechanics and so on so that's a different topic so what what causes the sensation of touch what is what is the what is behind the cause and effect sequence of a billiards ball bouncing off another one and all that the real question you're asking is why does matter occupy space why does matter occupy space why is it solid why is it reactive and so on and the 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 principle at the at the heart of this is what's called the pauli exclusion principle so what is the pauli exclusion principle it's it's something that is part of quantum mechanics quantum physics the pauli exclusion principle says that two or more identical particles with half integer spins that is fermions cannot occupy the same quantum state within a single quantum system simultaneously at the same time okay that's about fermions particles with half integer spin what are fermions fermions ex- include all the quarks all the leptons all composite particles made up of these uh, made up of an odd number of these such as baryons atoms nuclei and so on these are fermions and because they cannot occupy the same quantum space quantum state simultaneously within a single quantum system that's why matter takes up space that's why matter occupies space that's why you cannot squeeze matter beyond a certain limit unless you want to create a singularity I mean, that's possible beyond a certain uh, that that is general relativity that's a whole different thing but that is the reason why matter occupies space that is why matter is hard or soft or whatever depending on the properties it is all because of the pauli exclusion principle right atoms can touch each other they can merge together in the process called fusion that's a whole different story but the reason why matter occupies space and the reason why you have the sensation of touch and the sensation of the cause and effect thing of billiards balls bouncing and all that it is all because of the at the, at the heart of all of these phenomena is the pauli exclusion principle of quantum mechanics so you can explore that further that's what i can tell you in brief <clears throat> alpha says when humans discovered nuclear fission and fusion they cleared they created weapons rather than using that energy to power machines is this the greatest stupidity of mankind when humans discovered fire they used it for cooking they also used it for warfare when humans discovered metals copper smelting iron smelting they used it for building utensils for for building various things and also for building swords and knives and weapons all technology has multiple uses when humans discovered nuclear fission they built nuclear reactors that can be used to produce energy electricity etc but they can also be used to to develop nuclear weapons so that's just how it is technology is purpose agnostic technology just exists but how you use it is up to you uh ideally you would want to use all technology for good purposes non destructive non military purposes but that's not how the world works so is it stupidity well if that is the greatest stupidity of stupidity of mankind then then humankind is stupid by nature inherently and so are, are our closest relatives the chimpanzees who are also just as inherently violent and stupid as we are so technology is purpose agnostic you can use it for whatever purpose you want a stick can be used for 
playing drums it can be used for cracking skulls i mean that's up to you right so yeah i mean there's no value judgment in this that's just the way we are as a as a species and all technology can be used for a variety of purposes including destructive purposes that's just the way it is secret santa says i would like to know what is your opinion on the feynman lectures books is it a good book to understand physics for beginners or the fundamentals of physics recommended by you is a better option uh the feynman lectures are obviously uh, a series of books written by the great richard feynman the great physicist richard feynman feynman who was a nobel laureate these books they, they are uh, well they 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 are um, people say that these are books for beginners but that's not the case these books should be used by by elite level students the top 1% of the students it is not something that is suitable for beginners even though they may be uh, portrayed as beginner level books the fundamentals of physics by halliday and rustic or whatever else is the standard text that is used in schools and colleges etc that is the right place to start if you want to learn physics from scratch the the fundamentals of physics by Fe- the feynman lectures should is something that ca- that should be studied by elite level students the top 1% that's only when you have mastered the fundamentals can you go into the feynman lectures and then you will understand the fundamentals even better from a different perspective from the perspective of a genius physicist so when i was a kid i tried studying the feynman lectures as as a beginner text did not work for me i had to go down to the level of uh, halliday and rusnik study that thoroughly master that internalize it that thoroughly by solving lots of problems then later on when i reopened the feynman lectures they made a lot more sense to me right so it is not for beginners it is not even for ordinary students it's for elite level students that is my perspective on this tejas says until the 10th standard i was a science enthusiast but due to my jee preparation i hate science now what should i do to restore my love towards science hmm that's an interesting question let me give you a strange example let's say your favorite food is pizza pizza yeah let's say your favorite food is pizza you love it more than anything else now what if i were to force you to eat nothing but pizza not twice or thrice a day but six times a day for an entire year let's say one of these days you feel like eating uh, masala dosa with sambar i say no you want that taste you need to have that on a pizza masala dosa sambar flavor on pizza let's say one day you feel like having uh, alu gobi i say no you want that you need to have that on pizza alu gobi flavor on pizza with the, with the alu gobi toppings let's say you want palak paneer i say you must have it on pizza palak paneer topping on pizza so i force you to eat pizza six times a day and nothing but pizza six times a day for 365 days continuously after th- after after a year will you still love pizza will you still think it's your favorite food no you will be sick and tired of it right 
so that is the kind of thing that happens when you force somebody to do do something that they love even they may love it but you force them to do it over and over and over again for a long period of time they will get tired of it no matter what it is so maybe you love science and why why does somebody love science because you're fascinated with science you find it fascinating and you want to learn it and you want to go to the next level in the next level in the next level you want more and more knowledge because it's so interesting but when you are doing when you are preparing for an exam you're not learning anything new you are staying at the same level but you are practicing over and over again problem after problem after problem and all you are trying to learn is how to get good marks in in an exam it's no longer about loving the subject it's just about passing an exam that kind of kills the joy of learning the subject now don't get me wrong i'm not saying you should not study for exams it is a necessary part of life unfortunately the way the education system is today you have to get to pass exams and you have to get good marks and get a certain ranking or whatever because that's how you get a degree or admission and that's how you get a job eventually that's just the way the world is certain things you have to do but yes it can kind of kill all the joy of the subject of of uh, the the joy and the fascination that you had for the subject so let's say i forced you to eat pizza for for 6 times a day for a year how will you rediscover your love for pizza by taking a break for it for a while so let's say you have done your je you got a good 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 ranking you got a, you got admission to your iit or whatever then take a break for a while before you you have to go and join the iit just detoxify your mind of that do something else so that would typically be how you do it uh, but if you had a love for science inherently then i think you can certainly restore it after a while you you just need to ensure that the burnout stage is is behind you in the, in the rear view mirror so that's what i would offer to you there is no hard and fast rule of how to rediscover your love or restore your love typically you take a break from something for for some time and then you can recharge your mind and maybe hopefully rediscover your love for the subject so typically it's like this uh when you are doing research you you're always learning something new you're trying to discover something that nobody has discovered thus far which means you're going deeper and deeper into the subject but that is the joy of discovery you may have to work 8 12 hours a day every day for 5 years 10 years in in the in the pursuit of what you're trying to discover albert einstein worked from went essentially he he disappeared from 1905 to 1915 in the quest of the general theory of relativity it took him a decade of relentless hard work it did not he did not lose his love for physics because he was doing it for from the purpose of discovery right he was every day he was making some progress he was discovering something new as long as that is there you will not uh feel that your 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 quest is pointless but when you're just forced to study for an entire year for an exam and you're not learning anything new you're just practicing that can kind of burn your mind out especially when you have to do it like 8 or 10 or 12 hours a day the way some people have to do so yeah when you are in that situation the best remedy is to take a break as long as you can possibly can so that could possibly do the trick for you 
Shubham says, I will be in a graduate program for mathematics from fall 2022. How should I choose one area of research in mathematics? As of now, I like algebra, like Lie algebra and representation theory, functional analysis and algebraic number theory. However, I have not been able to decide one area for research. I have funding available for six years and I am sure I won't be able to research on all these topics within this time period. Could you please advise me something so that I can get out of this dilemma? Okay, so I will give you a general rule of thumb as to how to do research when you're starting off. You are going to go into graduate research, graduate program, which is the master's level and eventually it will culminate in a PhD, right? And you have funding for six years. So typically you would do a certain piece of research for your master's level requirements uh, and there'll be coursework in that. And then for your for your PhD, you will do possibly a different uh, kind of research. The rule of thumb is that when you are starting off, when you are in, the, in graduate school, don't try to bite off more, more than you can chew, which means don't try to tackle a problem or take on a problem that will give you a Nobel Prize or a Fields Medal. Don't do that. Don't take something that's massive and very difficult. Take something that will produce original, genuinely original research, but it's not too hard and too complicated. You just need to get your degree first. You need to, to reach that milestone. Once you get the degree and then when you go further in your career, you can take up the bigger problems. So don't take, take on too many things and don't uh, try to tackle enormous problems. Keep it simple. Make sure that the problem that you take will advance the field in some way, will ensure that you have done original research, but don't make it too difficult and too complicated. So that is the simple rule of thumb that I would offer you from a lot of experience. And, and yeah, from my experience, right? So that's the best advice I can offer you. Simple advice. All the best, sir. Ashish says, is it easier to understand other subjects if one understands the hard sciences? Uh, typically, a person who understands mathematics and logic can understand anything. Anything. And the, and, the, and the basis, the foundation of all the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, etc., is mathematics and logic. And the scientific method, which is logic. Right? So, yeah. Who is it? Uh, Naval Ravikant, right, the great, uh, the, the famous investor, he says that if, the, if you if you understand math and logic, you can understand and master almost anything, and I totally agree with that. That's been my experience also, and I realized this quite late that yeah, I I can I can understand lots of different fields because I have the advantage of of knowing math and physics and the scientific method, which is logic. So. The short answer to your question is yes, it is indeed easier to understand other subjects if one has a rigorous training and understanding in the hard sciences. Yes, it is indeed true. Alok says, is it okay to breathe? Hmm. I highly recommend breathing. Yes, I highly recommend it. Okay, with that, we are at the end of today's uh, questions that I have selected. Now, let us take uh, some questions from the chat. If you have questions, do ask me in the live chat right now. Um, 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 um. 
Okay, Shahil says, if I don't get into IIT, should I use MIT open courseware, computer science and engineering courses? Or are there any better options? See, why do you get into the IIT? Or why do you try that? To get a degree, right? You can certainly learn the subject from MIT open courseware, but you will not get a degree at the end of the, the learning experience. Uh, so if you just want the knowledge, if you just want to master the subject, then I would certainly recommend the open courseware uh, series, whether it's MIT, whether it's Stanford or whatever else, it's all available for free on YouTube. Great resource. Even if you're in the IIT and you, if you want to understand the subject from a different perspective or, or whatever, you could certainly take that as something extra to study. But if you want a degree, then you have to get into an institution, IIT or something else. So that's the options that you have. All right. Um, how to be a polymath like Da Vinci? First of all, you need to be born extremely intelligent, genius level intelligence. Uh, very few people have that. So if you have that, then you should explore your curiosity and study everything you can, read as much as you want, as you can. Es essentially dedicate and invest your entire time into learning. That's how you become a poly polymath like Leonardo da Vinci. He was... Uh, an engineer, he was a painter, he was an artist, he was a scientist. He uh, contributed significantly to the, to the field of anatomy. So he had so many different interests. That is the definition of a polymath, somebody who, has, who is more than competent, who, who, has, who is an expert in multiple fields or subjects. Music, art, science, mathematics, and so on. So, so very few people can be that. You have to be at a, at a very high level of intelligence and competence, genius level. So that's the first requirement. And then you have to be curious and you have to invest the time and the effort in learning all of and mastering all of these different disparate disciplines. That's how you do it, sir. All the best. Right. Mm, what other questions? When will I show my bookshelf? Well, you can see some more of it now. Maybe, maybe in the future I will take some photographs and just put it up on the community section and you can take a good deep look at it. All right. Okay. Dungar Singh Johan, are space hurricanes dangerous? I'm not quite sure what a space hurricane is. I think it's some kind of interaction between the solar wind with the magnetosphere of the earth, similar to the process that causes uh, uh, aurora. Aurora Borealis, Aurora Aurealis, uh, Australis, or something like that. I think that's what a space hurricane is. Is it dangerous? Um, a space hurricane is is a, a symptom of a larger cause. I mean, if that's what it is. Uh, so, what would really be dangerous is uh, is solar wind or or yeah, solar storm essentially, because that could. Uh, interact with the magnetosphere, the magnetic uh, environment of the Earth, and it could potentially disrupt uh, electrical grids and other systems on the Earth. That could cause a lot of problems. So that is what I can offer you right now. I'm not quite sure what, what space hurricanes are, which phenomenon is now called space hurricanes, but how about I look into it and maybe I can give you a more in-depth answer next time. Next time. So, yeah. 
Okay, any other questions that would evoke my curiosity? What are white holes? White holes, I have answered this question, I think one or two episodes before. White holes are, essentially, you can think of a white hole as a time-reversed black hole. So if you had a black hole, in a black hole, everything goes inward, inside, inside, and there is a an event horizon, which is a point of no return. Once any object, any particle, any human being or whatever crosses the event horizon, there is no way of them to re-emerge from there. It's the point of no return. If you were to reverse that process, then a white hole is like a time-reversed black hole. It has an event horizon and it is the point of no entry. Beyond that, you simply cannot enter. So in a black hole, you will see things going inside, objects falling inside. In a white hole, the gravitational effects are are the same. But a white hole is the opposite of a black hole. Things emerge out of it. So essentially, a white hole is like a time-reversed black hole. Right? Constant change says, exams exams kill curiosity subjects. What to do, sir? Well, there is, there is, no, there is no remedy to it right now. The system, the education system is such that everything depends on exams. Exams are high stakes things. And you have to go get good marks in exams in order to, well, achieve whatever great objectives you have. I know they kill curiosity. They, they kill the joy of life. They kill the joy of the subject. That's what it is. That's not how the system should be. Uh, a better system would be continuous evaluation of a, sub, of a student's performance throughout the year. Not through exams, but by other means. There are lots of other examples in other countries that you could uh, take a look at. But as of now, this is what we have. Exams have to be dealt with. So all I can say is deal with it. And uh, once you are done with your exam, take a break. And hopefully that will recharge your mind. And then it'll your curiosity will be hopefully brought back to where it was. That's, that's all I can offer right now. Okay, do we have any other interesting questions? How is emotional intelligence necessary in life? I, I you know, I, I like to define things. What is the definition of emotional intelligence? I don't have a definition for that. So, um, so the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is, first of all. I know what intelligence is. is it is the ability to learn things rapidly and, and and apply the learnings in solving problems and dealing in, in dealing with life and situations and, and problems. That is the rough definition of what intelligence is. Now, what is emotional intelligence? I don't quite know. I know people have written books about that. I may even have a book somewhere lying around about emotional intelligence. I've never read it. Never made sense to me. I've, I mean, I've, I may have started reading it, but I I couldn't wrap my my mind around it. So, so yeah, I don't quite know what it is. What I can say is what is necessary in life is emotional stability. Most people are governed by their emotions. A few sometimes they're happy and things are great, they can do things. Sometimes they're upset and they cannot do anything. The plans change depending on the emotions. The agenda of the day changes depending on how what your emotional state is. So many people, if not most people, are greatly driven and governed by their emotions. Their emotions govern their life. That is bad. That is bad. If you are a person who is driven and governed by emotions, you will not achieve much in life. You need emotional stability. Even when you're feeling bad or good or whatever, 
the best thing is is a plateau of emotions where you are you know equanimous so that comes through i don't know some people are born with that some people need training some people need meditation some people need other things but what i would say is most important in life is emotional stability don't allow your emotions to drive you and govern you right okay any other questions any other questions one lecture on pyramids of egypt how is it built um yeah it's it's architecture it's technology technology from that time a few thousand years ago so yeah i'm not quite sure how they built it maybe it's a mystery so yeah maybe i will look into it maybe maybe yeah maybe okay there are lots of questions about history and geopolitics today is the day of science my dear friends um uh okay i guess we are we are i i guess i guess that's it for today uh there are lots of questions but i'll 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 call it call it quits at this point nearly 2 hours so so thank you okay let's let's take one <laughs> one last question which is is it a scientific question sagnik says is it okay to not get married married well science has no opinion about this so it's your choice it's your choice whether you want to get married or not it's it's your choice who am i to tell you whether it's okay or not it's for each person to decide for themselves there is no right or wrong in this so i would say that if that is what works for you if that is what makes you happy then go ahead with that go ahead with that you should go ahead with whatever is best for you from your perspective all right and with that i will end today's session thank you very much great talking to you all and i will see you in tomorrow's history geopolitics and current affairs session until then take care and uh, see you bye